Hi, I'm Zach Mander. And I'm Dom Fay. And welcome to So What, the show from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. So, Dom, I hate to say this, but we've arrived at the end. What? Zach, we've been friends for a decade. Don't do this. No, I mean the end of this season of So What. This is the last episode of season two. Oh, you're not friend breaking up with me? I don't think friend breaking up is a thing. Phew, well, that's good news. I can't believe this is the last episode of the series already, though. I was really getting into it. Hope it doesn't end on a cliffhanger. Well, we'll see about that, because we're not done just yet. Before we wrap everything completely up, we need to talk about a major energy source that's been bugging me all season. Gas. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything, but you might want to see a doctor. That's not what I meant. Did you know our national electricity market, or the NEM, currently has around 11 gigawatts of dispatchable power coming from gas? I'm assuming 11 gigawatts is a lot. It is. And as we phase out the 23 gigawatts of capacity currently coming from coal, gas will be increasingly important to the stability of the grid. In fact, AEMO, the Australian energy market operator, says that despite our grid switching to renewables, in 2050 we'll still need 10 gigawatts of gas for firming up solar and wind. There's that word again, firming. What do you mean by that? I'll get to that in a second, because if you want to know anything about gas, you should probably talk to this guy. So in front of us, um, you're looking at four gas turbines um, that run from uh, east to west. So um, a mixture of industrial and aero derivative gas turbines that are in uh, packages. So they're pretty well self-contained. Um, and each one is a basically an aircraft engine with a large generator uh, on the left of it. Um, and behind them you can see um, the exhaust where they, the waste heat um, leaves the turbines while it's running. This is Paul Stainer, the manager of the Quarantine Power Station, which is located on Torrens Island in South Australia, just near Adelaide. Right in the very far end of the, uh, the power station is our large frame nine, which is um, a 128 megawatt machine, um, quite large, it's the largest one on this, uh, on this site in fact. Um, and that's um, been here since um, 2009, whereas the four um, gas turbines you can see, um, one to four, uh, were installed in 2002. Quarantine Power Station is a pretty interesting place. As Paul mentioned, there are five gas turbines, four smaller units in the front and a big unit out the back. And this whole facility can generate almost 240 megawatts of power. The smaller machines range from 29 megawatts, the, the two newer machines. Um, the older two machines are 24.5 uh, megawatts, and then you have the 128 megawatts uh, from the gas turbine. We've heard how pumped hydro and coal work, but how does a gas turbine work? How is it able to take gas and convert it into energy? I'll let Paul take this one. I guess for the people that are listening, if we're standing in front of one of our smaller uh, gas turbines um, and looking from left to right it looks like a big train carriage in some respects N not quite as crude there's a lot more uh, equipment on top of and around it um, but it's you know one big series of uh, compartments tacked onto each other with a uh, generator um, and fundamentally uh, what happens we draw air in through a big filter system as well and we draw that into a compressor um, now this is a big rotating piece of machinery and its basic job is to compress air and create energy. Um, and we do that by adding fuel and uh, creating high pressure, high temperature air. And that air then, or that gas I should say, is then directed on some other rotating elements 
um, called a power turbine and that drives um, the generator at the end. So we're taking mechanical energy and we're turning it into electrical uh, energy. And the beauty of it, as opposed to a reciprocating engine, is that it doesn't need to change direction. As we know with a, a typical car engine, um, once the piston gets to the top, it needs to change direction and go back down again. With a gas turbine, it's constantly rotating in the, the one direction. So there's no losses um, in terms of um, inertia there. It just continues. So 65% of the work the turbine needs is, is put into compressing the air to get us that high uh, pressure gas that we can then combust. Quarantine is also what's called a peaking power plant. Okay, let me get this straight. There's firming, and now you've mentioned peaking. Zach, I think this episode might go a lot better if you'd actually tell me what these terms mean. Okay, well, peaking power plants basically turn off and on as the grid requires. They're designed specifically to deal with high demand, or peaks in the network, and they can help fill gaps in the market from other sources. So, as we switch to renewables, they'll help us firm up our energy supply to make sure we can keep the lights on. They're very flexible machines, which means that they can start very fast. Um, they can shut down very fast when, they, when they're not needed. And they can respond uh, to uh, any fluctuations in the grid um, uh, very well. Where the largest turbine, the Frame 9, it sits there as a, um, an anchor in some respect uh, to the grid. It's there to provide base load um, and provide a higher level of stability. Um, where the smaller ones respond pretty quickly to the, you know, the volatile dynamic market um, that we're in at the moment. Right, so there's a big turbine and there's some smaller turbines. I, I think I'm still a little confused as to how all of this is going to power my giant Santa. Is that a new addition to the display this year? One of many. I think you're especially going to love the Jack Frost statue I've bought as a tribute to the Santa Claus 3, the Escape Clause. Of course, one of the greats. I still can't believe it didn't get a Best Picture nomination at the Oscars. Tim Allen robbed. Anyway, there's a couple of different styles of turbines at quarantine, and the difference in these turbines can give us a bit of a picture as to how the future of our grid will work. There's fundamentally two types of turbines I'd like to talk about here. This is Bill Truscott, Origins Group Manager for Asset Development. There's what they call an industrial turbine. They're slow, um, they, they ramp slow, they, they take some time to get on the grid, and they're really built to run to full load and just continue churning through the day. And there is the concept of a aeroderivative gas turbine, which is a very fast and flexible turbine. And the reason it's called aeroderivative is it actually is the same as the engine you see on the, the wings of planes, fitted out to, uh, for the grid. And as you could expect on a plane, you need engines that can turn on and off very quickly and ramp very quickly to different output levels. And that's exactly what we've done at Quarantine. We've taken the old um, old technology industrial gas turbines out and replaced them with the new technology, very fast acting turbines, and that allows us to turn them on and off very quickly. Wait, so they're basically using aircraft engines to power the grid? Pretty much. Well, at least the newer ones. And this is what the future of our grid will look like, because as Bill mentioned, Origin recently upgraded two of the units at Quarantine to run on these new aeroplane-style turbines. And they can actually turn on and off much quicker than the older units. In fact, um, the old turbines that came out, if you got a start signal, it would take you 20 to 25 minutes to actually get the, get the, the machine on and up to full load. These aero-driven machines can get there in five minutes. 
After making this series, I feel like I'm getting a bit more of an understanding about some of these things, but Zach, why do we need gas turbines to start quickly? It's not like they need to take off or anything like actual jet engines. Or is it? Actually, that's a cool idea. Flying power plants. Write that down. No, I won't write that down. Why not? Well, we're talking about how to make the grid more sustainable. I'm not sure if flying power plants is an idea I should be writing down. I don't see the problem. Well, that aside, why we need gas turbines to start quickly is a good question, though. Because when it comes to the grid, as we invest more in renewables, we need our gas plants to respond quickly to the unpredictability of solar and wind. Now, you may ask, why is that important? Well, one of the principles of renewable energy is it's unpredictable and uncontrollable. So we have no control over when the sun's going to be shining or the cloud cover comes over or the wind picks up and and drops. So you tend to get a very, uh, or a much more volatile output out of renewable assets than you do out of um, uh, dispatchable assets. So you actually need the ability to be able to fill the gaps. Uh, For example, if the sun's shining brightly and all of our solar farms are are putting out lots of energy, and all of a sudden a cloud comes over, that, that solar output can drop very quickly, and the ability to be able to get gas turbines on and fill the gap very quickly is very important. Um, so uh, we, we saw a lot of value in transitioning those units that quarantine across to these much faster units because that aligns very well with that transition to, to renewable energy and in fact allows renewable, more re- renewable energy onto the grid in a secure manner. Okay, so as you pointed out back in episode one, Dom, the sun doesn't shine at night. What can I say? I've always been a keen observationalist. And as Bill just mentioned, there's plenty of times during the day when the output of solar and wind can drop significantly, like when a cloud rolls over. And those drops happen quickly. So while it's easy to predict when the sun's going to go down, it's much harder to predict the changes in the weather. And all this variation is making it more challenging for everyone running the grid. Those periods are usually really um, around our evening periods from about five o'clock when we do know that the sun is going down and the intensity of our solar generation is not, um, not that good anymore. This is Karen Clark, who manages Origin's Monitoring and Support Centre, which handles the dispatch of Origin's power plants. We heard from Karen earlier in the series. And what happens is then we need to actually fill the gaps in that generation with some of these gas turbines that we do need to switch on. So if this really happens in the afternoon when everybody gets home from work and they're switching in the summer their air cons on or in winter their heaters on um, and that demand actually picks up and there's no um, renewables that can actually generate that power. So we step in with those gas turbines during those peak periods and we switch them on and dispatch that electricity to the market really quickly when it's needed. Karen actually works with plant managers like Paul to make sure that all that demand is met as the market requires it. And the variability of renewables is something that Paul has noticed firsthand at quarantine. Because since installing those new, more efficient turbines, the plant is seeing those turbines power off and on a lot more frequently. Certainly we're off and on uh, a lot more in the short space of time than, than, than we ever were. Uh, you know, we, traditionally we had the um, your typical peak periods um, in the morning um, and then at evening um, for the smaller units, and that was summer and winter uh, typically. So it was really seasonal uh, based. I mean, there's still a, a large element of that, by the way, because the temperature uh, dictates how we use power uh, in our homes uh, as well. So 
But what we have seen is now we're um, influenced um, heavily by uh, the wind, um, the sun in terms of power production, that while these units would just start in the morning or uh, in the afternoon peak periods, they'll start at any time now, the moment, um, during the day I should say. Uh, you know, it might be at 12 o'clock, might be 1 o'clock. They might start multiple times within that hour. They'll just come off for five minutes, ten minutes, you know, uh, depending on what our customers need and what the grid needs, and then they'll shut down um, for the after the peak period. Um, and then we uh, we might have a, as you can see now, quite an overcast day, um, and hence um, there's a good reason they're on now. Um, you know, solar uh, rooftop production at the moment would be quite low, and I wouldn't consider it a, a windy day. Um, so the units will stay on uh, to support it if. By virtue the the sun came out you would probably see them shut down I should say and then if um, the opposite happened and the clouds come over they would uh, start again. So if these new turbines are based on an aircraft engine do they also sound like planes? Well yeah when they start up or shut down you could mistake yourself for being at an airport. And it's actually surprising how many similarities there are between a gas turbine and a jet engine. So one uh, ideal aspect of an, an air, aircraft engine, which basically is what we're standing in front of here, um, but it's just using a, a, a LAN application, is the fact that it's quite a lightweight, nimble um, engine. Uh, the material is very, very light, so it can rotate really quickly. Um, if you're sitting in your aircraft uh, taking off, you hear the throttles change, you know, very rapidly likewise if you're landing at the airport you know many of us have heard the engines um, and the throttle response modulate very very quickly and that's because these engines are quite light and the rotating elements in them are, are, are quite light uh, as well so they can change their speed very very rapidly and, and that's why the new turbines that we've got here at site um, are ideal for the current environment. And in the same way that an aircraft engine has to slowly wind down when you land Whenever the turbines are shut down, it's a similar process. So we hear the pitch of the generator change um, and the power of the gas turbine is reducing. So right now, less power uh, is going into the gas turbine and less um, energy is going into the generator to try to drive the same um, output. So it'll start to wind down um, and then it'll come down to cool down because once these uh, machines operate, we need to come down and get them cool and consolidate temperatures. I know we've been talking about this all season, but if there's still these issues with variability, how do we actually get our entire energy grid to 100% renewables? Obviously, we've talked about some of the solutions and the role of gas and pumped hydro in providing stability, but moving to a 100% renewable grid across the whole country won't be easy. So I think the main problem that we have at the moment in the, in the grid is that we are getting more and more renewable energy in, right? And and we cannot really control how much energy we produce there because it depends on, on the sun and the wind. So, and that's maybe okay if we have 30, 40, 50% renewable energy that can still be handled then by just ramping up and down the other uh, producers. This is Christoph Bergmeier, our energy weatherman from earlier in the series. Christoph is a senior lecturer in the Department of Data Science and AI at Monash University. And Christoph says, as we move closer to 100% renewables, we're going to need to rely a lot more on technology to help us deal with this variability. 
But now if we want to get to 100% renewable energy, certain things that that we can do today, we might not be able to do them in five years time just because we have more renewable energy in the grid. So, so this uh, control of how to organize this interplay of the different producers and consumers that will get more and more important as we go forward. So right now we can probably still manage the grid without these, well, without AI and without these uh, complex control mechanisms. But as we go forward, this will become increasingly more difficult. Well, I mean, the the bottom line is always you just... Uh, you just switch off the solar, right? So, so the 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 thing is that the bottom line is is always if there's instability in the grid, we just need to to switch off solar. Well, and we just need to switch off renewable energy, and in effectively a lot of energy gets not used in that way. And that's something we want to avoid, and AI can help us do that. Dom, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a first-hand example in Australia of what a fully renewable grid could look like. We do? Absolutely. Although only in a temporary sense, because South Australia is actually leading the charge when it comes to the rollout of renewables. It's been investing heavily in solar, wind, and batteries, with plans to hit 100% renewables by 2030. And the state has already been running the entire grid on renewables for short periods of time. In 2021, South Australia set a local record by running its grid on 100% renewables for almost a week. But there are still plenty of kinks to iron out before that can become a permanent thing. We are learning more all the time and um, South Australia uh, now sometimes runs purely on renewables. There are lots of issues that we've seen in South Australia, and we've seen, seen that some years ago with uh, when they had their system blackout. They have uh, installed assets on the grid over there called synchronous condensers, which maintain an, an amount of inertia on the grid and an amount of fault current on the grid that keeps the grid stable uh, and allows that grid to run from time to time without any uh, fossil fuel um, assets running. But I stress that that's from time to time. Very often they have to direct those fossil fuel assets back on to maintain that security. I want to pause for a second because Bill mentioned a couple of terms that I found a bit confusing, but they are pretty important to this whole discussion. Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything, but I was also confused about a couple of things. Just a couple? Okay, I was confused by his whole paragraph. I'm guessing one of those words was inertia and maybe synchronous condensers. There was also fault current? Yes, that's a good one. Well... Pay attention and I'll try to explain a few of those terms. Let's start with inertia. Because all of the coal and even the gas power plants we have on the grid have spinning turbines. And these turbines actually play an important role in the stability of the network. Because they provide inertia. And as it turns out, that inertia is important for maintaining the integrity of the grid whenever a fault occurs. Here's Paul again. It's um, all about um, power system uh, security. You know, you, you can... Uh, look at it from a view that um, when we have uh, wind and solar, uh, as important as renewables, renewables are, um, they lack that, um, that inertia. Um, that weight that sits behind the system that we would all take for granted. Um, so th these machines are built and designed um, just like a, a hose. You know, a lot of people turning on the taps um, at, at the same time. 
uh, as well. Um, they provide enough uh, mass flow of power that um, it takes a lot to stop them. So it's not an easy squeeze on that, on that hose. It takes a fair bit uh, to interrupt them from doing their job. Right, so inertia is all the weight behind the grid. What about fault current? Well, Bill says it's really about how the grid handles issues in the network. So if you get an instantaneous uh, drop in resistance through a fault, you've got to feed a lot of current into that fault to maintain the voltage. If you don't, the voltage will collapse and then the whole grid will come down. So it's very important you have assets on the grid that can um, provide very short-term spurts of current while the, the, uh, giving the grid time to, to clear a fault. Now traditionally, that's been provided by all of the big spinning machines you see on the grid. So we need the inertia to help manage faults in the grid? Exactly. What those spinning machines have is a lot of inertia, a lot of weight that will keep the, the machine running, and a lot of stored electrical energy inside the generator. So when you get the fault, what happens is that weight tends to power the generator through the fault and release a lot of that current into the fault. Because the, the, the fault's trying to slow the generator down, but it's that weight that keeps it going. If you remove all those assets from the grid, you don't have the ability to provide that fault current. In, um, Inverter-based uh, assets like renewable energy assets and batteries struggle with providing enough fault current to keep the voltage up during a fault. An electricity grid works on the basis that supply and demand must always be kept in balance. This is Dr Mark Diesendorf, an honorary associate professor at the University of New South Wales. If the supply is greater than demand, then the frequency of alternating currents increases. Now, our electricity grid has current and voltage that alternates, that that oscillates at 50 cycles a second. And it's, for many electricity using appliances and pieces of equipment, it's really important that they receive 50 cycles per second alternating current. So what happens if we don't get that 50 cycles per second? Well, for an energy grid, I think we can assume nothing good. If the frequency of oscillation increases, significantly above 50 cycles a second, then some of this equipment is going to suffer. And if it increases too much, uh, we can have a blackout. And the reverse is also true. If supply is significantly less than demand, the grid frequency will decline. And, and then we will have the same problems with equipment and then ultimately with producing blackouts. So we must try and balance supply and demand. So how can we maintain the frequency in the grid as we switch towards renewables then? It sounds like there's a lot of issues we still need to figure out. Well, that brings me to the synchronous condenser. That sounds a lot like a Harry Potter spell. It does, doesn't it? And, you know, it's a little magical. You know, I feel like Hermione might have been smart enough to run the energy grid. Yes. Harry Potter and the importance of energy inertia. Well, I missed that one. Is that the eighth book? Yes, currently unreleased. I have to track down a copy of it. Okay, well, while you do that, the synchronous condenser is a solution that's been tried in South Australia. Which basically are, are sort of heavy rotating machines. They don't use any power except power they get from the grid. And they can be used to stabilise the frequency of oscillation in South Australia. And they are very successful. And it means that as these synchronous condensers 
have been installed, the amount of backup gas-fired power is being reduced, is becoming unnecessary. And we can see how the synchronous condensers can help the transition of South Australia towards 100% renewables. But I believe by that time, the synchronous condensers themselves will become unnecessary because the wind and solar farms will be producing through uh, these new types of inverters that are under development. These wind and solar farms will be producing 50 cycles per second uh, electricity into the grid and feeding it into the grid. The other barrier to getting to 100% renewables is of course infrastructure. And as we found out earlier in the series, we need a lot more transmission to make sure we can get power from where it's generated to where it needs to be used. The biggest challenge by far is lack of transmission. This is Professor Andrew Blakers from the Australian National University. Oh, I love Andrew. He's been one of our regulars this series. Oh, here's an idea, Zach. We should do a big season two party after this episode and invite all of our regular guests along. You and I could host it. I think I'm busy that day. I didn't specify a date. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure I'm busy. Oh. Let's just let Andrew speak. And this transmission will bring the solar and wind farm electricity into the cities. It will strongly interconnect the states. It'll connect the large-scale pump hydro systems that um, support the whole uh, system. And um, it, it's all very straightforward. It just needs uh, state and federal governments to get in there and just do the job. Andrew says one of the biggest things we need to do as a nation is just increase our spending on all kinds of renewables and back that up with the transmission capacity we need to make it all work. So we need to triple what we're doing. Um, but then on the other hand, we're doing it five times faster than we were five years ago. It's not very difficult to triple the rollout of solar and wind farms. Um, it's not very difficult to get enough batteries and pumped hydro to support the, um, the solar and wind rollout. The number one impediment is lack of transmission. So given all of these challenges then, do we actually know how to run a grid on renewables? Well, let's bring back an old friend. I think it's a question we can answer now to some degree. This is Bruce Mountain director of the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. Bruce Mountain, I love Bruce. He definitely gets an invitation to the party. I'll make it out to Mr Mountain. I actually think he has a PhD. Oh, that's even cooler, Dr Mountain. And Dr Mountain is confident about our renewable future. For example, in um, South Australia, there are many time intervals in the year when South Australia has only the wind or sun at the margin. Um, they've been able to turn off almost all of their synchronous uh, gas-fired generation uh, and utilise interconnector and battery. So we can do it in pockets and we can do it for points in time. The question, at, at what point can we do it across the grid in total for a sustained period of time? I dare say push, you know, if we push the whole system, it could be the case that even now the whole grid for intervals could be run with the batteries, the hydro, the wind and sun we have. We don't quite have enough to meet it instantaneously, but not far. The question is when we can do that for sustained periods of time, keep the system frequency stable, have the backup reserve. Technology is improving, knowledge is improving, wind and solar is expanding, uh, and there are heaps of super smart engineers who are utterly enthralled by this problem. 
I have no doubt will completely lick it. It's got to be a very controlled transition to make sure that one, we supply the energy requirements for our customers, but also supply the reliability of supply for our customers. So I think we've got to make sure we, we focus on that transition to get it right. This is Steve Rigby, Origin's General Manager of Generation and Development. Do we know how to run a grid on 100% renewables? You, ju- you just have to look at South Australia, who has done it. Now, I think for the whole of Australia to do that, you're going to have to have a huge amount of investment in the renewable space that will allow us to to, to close down the large coal-fired generators. But is it technically feasible? Yes. Will it require uh, a huge amount of investment? Yes. Uh, so do, do you do you have the appetite as a, as a nation to do it? Uh, I know that Origin's got an appetite to go through that transition to be a, a, a much cleaner operator in relation to generation, so where there's a a will, there's a way. So What is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy, and is brought to you by Origin, production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. If you'd like to find out more about the transition to renewables, we'll put a useful link in the show notes. You know, Zach, I've been trying to think of the best way to wrap up what's been such a fun series, and I'm wondering if a spot of Christmas caroling might be appropriate. I'd prefer if you didn't, because we want people to, like, come back in case we're renewed for another season in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I could record a bonus episode with my tips for the ultimate Christmas lights display. Yeah, but we're trying to manage the demand on the network dump, not increase it. Speaking of that, I still think we should look into Christmas spirit as a power source. And that's why we've had actual experts on this series. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. Can we turn his microphone off, please? You can learn more about this podcast and listen to previous episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what. Or just hit subscribe in the podcast app you're in right now. This series has been hosted by me, Zach Manda, and Dom Fay. And that's it. We're out. Oh. That was a lot of fun, Zach. I learned so much this series. I learned a lot as well. Like, I didn't even know what pumped hydro was until a few weeks ago. And I know this sounds basic, but I've only learned in this last episode, to Mm. be honest with you, that we need to use energy as it's generated. Like, when you turn on the lights, that energy was generated just a couple of minutes ago. I didn't know that. For some reason, you know, before this whole process, I thought we could store energy better than we can. I also had to buy those steel cap boots to visit the Araring site. And uh, I've never owned steel cap boots before, Zach. I've got to say, it's the toughest I've ever felt. Getting lots of use out of them? I haven't touched them since I got back from Araring. Well, that's but... not a good energy use. <laughs> that's true. I'll get, I will find uses for my steel cap boots. I hope this whole process has taught you you need to scale back your Christmas lights display because we've been getting a lot of complaints about how bright it is. Hey, the only complaints I've been getting say anonymous. Are you anonymous? Uh... No, no, not me. Definitely not. But one of the emails said definitely not Zach at gmail.com. Yeah, definitely not Zach. Did you yeah. read it? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Well, no, I'm actually going to go bigger and brighter this year, but I'm going to do it solar powered. So uh, there you go. I've, my, my Christmas lights display will be fully green. Well, actually, there'll be quite a bit of red and <laughs> yellow and other colours too. But from a, from a renewable point of view, fully green. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well... You want to come back to my place now to watch Flubber? No, thank you. Oh.